Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. So I had a I had one question. People were wondering which version of the New Jerusalem Bible that I was talking about. So if you go on Amazon and you do a search for the New Jerusalem Bible, it's going to have, I think, the first search result, which has that picture of Jesus ascending, and it's got a blue, a blue uh, back to it. But basically, that's the one you'd want, because it has the full notes and commentary. It should be about $33 or somewhere in that range. So it's 33.44, and if you find that one, that's the one that I was talking about. Okay, so so anyway, I'll just leave the map up for now and keep in mind that I'm going to be talking about Abraham. And so Abraham comes from this area up here, comes down into the Holy Land, and then later on his sons and the other patriarchs Jacob goes back, gets a wife, comes back. And then the rest of them, including when Joseph goes down first, kind of through trickery, but uh, eventually the other patriarchs will come down and live in this area, Goshen, down in that area. And then that's where they become eventually oppressed. And then there comes the Exodus. So anyway, this map kind of has all that on there. Okay, so first of all, you've all heard of Abraham. And... uh, Abraham is the beginning of somewhat of a historical nature of the, uh, the Jewish or the Israelites, the, the Hebrews. And that's kind of the beginning of all that. And God promises Abraham certain things. First, he just calls him, calls him out of his homeland and says, I, go to the land that I will promise you. And then he eventually will promise land, blessings, descendants, and so those three, land, blessing, and descendants. So there was this relationship that God said and which God promises. There was one incidental, uh, almost seems like it comes out of the blue, but when Abraham's in Israel, he comes up to this priest or king of Salem called Melchizedek. And so he comes into Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of what he has, and Melchizedek offers sacrifice for Abraham. And then that's the end of Melchizedek. We don't, we don't know about him before. We don't know about him after. And uh, therefore, he became kind of symbolic of a few things. First of all, this is one of the reasons why they think that uh, this section was something during the Davidic court. Because Melchizedek, being from Salem, there was an emphasis there on a king of Salem, just like David was the king of Jerusalem. 
And so it shows a connection to the monarchy there. But in other writings, there became a connection with Messiah. So just as David has a connection with the Messiah, Melchizedek does also. And since Melchizedek was a priest before the time of Egypt, I mean, before the time of Moses, then it predates the priesthood of Moses. So the book of Hebrews will talk about Melchizedek as being an eternal priesthood that doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end because Melchizedek seemingly comes out of nowhere. And it doesn't say that he was born or he died. So they make a reference to Melchizedek being a foreshadow or a type of Jesus who has this eternal priesthood, which supersedes the priesthood of Aaron. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but all that in that one little, one little clip. So the odds were definitely against Abraham and the promises that God promised him. And so because of that, there's always this tension in the story about how is God going to fulfill what he promised Abraham? How is he ever going to get descendants? So first of all, one of the biggest obstacles was Abraham was up there in years and so was Sarah. And uh, uh, there was a parishioner of ours. She was 47 and she got pregnant, you know, and I'm like, it's Sarah, you know, but, you know, but Sarah was up there in years. And so, and she was barren. So, so I was like, well, God's saying there's going to be these descendants. And, and there's a bit of a progression that happens. So first, he thinks with his nephew, Lot, well, maybe Lot's going to be the one. So he thinks, okay, Lot, you're going to be my descendant. And then eventually there's a falling out that happens there. And so Abraham gives Lot the best land. And then Abraham takes the worst land, which ends up being good. You know, but still, there's, okay, well, that first hope is gone. Lot's not going to be the one. Well, then there's Eliezer. Now, Eliezer is a servant. And so he thinks, well, maybe through Eliezer, he can be in my house. So he can be my descendant. And then he will be the one who will be my heir. But then that doesn't work out. Well, then Sarah says, hey, I got a great idea. I've got my Egyptian maidservant here named Hagar. So why don't you have sex with her, have some kids, and then that way you will have your heir. Abraham says, hey, that sounds like a great idea. (laughs) So anyway... He, he does have a child, and the child's name is Ishmael. Um, Ishmael was born, but at the time, it was made known to Abraham that that's not the one I'm talking about. That's not your heir that I want you to have. And then later, Sarah has a child. And so this seems like it's the fulfillment of the promise, Isaac. So all of a sudden... Oh, okay, I've got my heir. And then all of a sudden, God says, Hey, um, I got a great idea, Abraham. Why don't you sacrifice Isaac? And so Abraham's like, Well, what the heck? You know, it's like I've gone all the way up to here. I finally get my heir, and now you want me to sacrifice him. But he's obedient, and he does what God calls him to do. And as he goes to sacrifice, the angel says, No, do not harm that child. And, you know, but now here's the interesting thing. Remember when I talked about Uzi? And uh, the, the cities there with Nuzi, Nuzi and Ugarit. So there are documents that describe some of the legal code in that day. And the legal code of that day says, first of all, if you don't have an heir, then you can will your, uh, your whatever you have to your nephew. 
And then he becomes the legal heir. And then if that doesn't work, you can will to your uh, servant, and then he can become your legal heir. If your wife does not produce children, she has an obligation to get you a servant or another woman who can bear you a son. So that's a legal obligation. That's why Sarah does what she does. Because you're thinking, why would Sarah do that? You know, why would Sarah say, I got a great idea, Abraham? No, it was, she was following the law at that time, which predates Mosaic law. And it predates what, by the time they wrote all this stuff down, they had lost the reason for it. So anyway, but Sarah, um, she gets him Hagar. And then when Hagar has the kid, Ishmael, then all of a sudden he can become the heir. And then Sarah sends away Ishmael and Hagar. And then eventually Isaac comes into the picture. But again, this is another one of those examples, though, where the the law of the day is being applied, even though they forgot why that is. Uh, Someone asked again, like, what would be the advantage of saying that Sarah was Abraham's sister? It's, It's a way of raising her in the household to a higher standard than if she were just merely a wife. And once again, that was written into the law at the time as well. And so, remember, we're talking probably uh, at least 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, and so the laws then were different than the laws today. But those laws are what we call Hurrian laws, which were up around this area, and that's why the influence of these two cities and their legal code helped to describe what was going on in those early stories of Genesis. So do you see why? This is what we call internal evidence. That internal evidence says that, well... They're talking about historical um, norms and cultural norms that existed at the time that Abraham would have existed, that by the time these would have been written down during the time of the kingdom and later, they would not have known of. You know, so this is what you call internal evidence that shows that, well, there should be an Abraham since no writer who wrote about this and made it up would have included these details. So anyway, just another little side note. Um, Abraham was credited with faith and it was faith that was called trust and obedience or loyalty. We think of faith as like, I believe in God, but in that world, faith was, I am going to be loyal and obedient. And that loyalty and obedience was what they would consider to be faith, trust, loyalty, and obedience. And there was, uh, also what, what you may have heard that circumcision, Oh, by the way, I'm going to back up a little bit. So uh, now I'll include circumcision. So circumcision, circumcision was the, uh, the, the mark of the covenant, so to speak, between God and Abraham. And I've heard some people say things like, well, the reason why, the reason why Abraham was circumcised, it was the punishment because of the adultery created with Sarah. And so God was punishing him by circumcision. Well, from what I just told you about the ancient custom you can see that that doesn't make sense, does it? No. So circumcision was something that happened uh, because there was going to be a connection with an action and a sacrifice, even a sacrifice of blood to a certain extent, and that that also would have the connection of descendants so that all of Abraham's descendants would be connected to that circumcision as well, and it would go down the line. And so circumcision was part of that. Uh, by the way, the word Isaac, does anyone know what that word means? Laughter, Laughter yeah. So 
when they told, when the angel told Sarah that she was going to have a kid, she laughed. And then afterwards, the angel says, well, I don't care if you laugh or not. You're going to have the kid. And then she says, I didn't laugh. He goes, yes, you did. So. So anyway, but Abraham's kind of the founding figure of Judaism and our, our founding member of our own faith as well. And it goes back historically throughout the ages to that time of Abraham. Okay, so I'm going to look at some numbers for a second. Numbers in the Old Testament are often what we call ideal numbers. So they aren't always to be taken literally, but they're called to be taken ideally. So I gave one example about the, um, in Turkey, the archaeologist who said, how old your son? Well, he might be 20, might be 30, might be 40, Allah knows. But I will tell you this. You can, you can decide, but I will tell you this, that he's, uh, uh, he was born after the uh, end of World War II. You know, so, so basically, you've got this um, ideal use of numbers. And so sometimes you'll notice 40 shows up quite a bit. And that just is kind of like an ideal period of time. It may be grounded in the 40 years of King David being the reign or the monarch there. And then they project that back into like the 40 days of rain and, and that sort of thing. But that 40 is just considered an ideal number. Uh, seven, because of obviously the seven days of creation. Often 10 is used. Some will say for the 10 commandments, but it seems like it shows up more often in other ways as well. So here's something interesting. Abraham lived 175 years. Isaac lived 180 years. Jacob lived 147 years. And you can say, well, maybe they really lived that long. All right, maybe they did, but for the sake of argument, maybe those numbers mean something more. And this is something that happens not only in the Bible, but in other ancient literature. And what they do is they take numbers and they show a creative, uh, a creative way of using those numbers that it's not numerology, but it shows a certain cleverness in the text. All right, so Abraham, seven times five squared is 175. Isaac, five times six squared is 180. There's Jacob, three times seven squared equals 147. And so notice it goes five, six, seven on the right, and it goes five, six, seven, there's seven, five, three on the left. So it does show a certain pattern, doesn't it? And so the, the point of the whole number thing that I'm showing here is some people get weird with it. And, and they just, you know, overly analyze everything. I had a seminarian friend of mine, and he was always like, you know, I found this new thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. But, uh, but anyway, it was just a, a stylistic thing in the ancient world that they used to take numbers, and they would use them in these kinds of ways. It was a certain cleverness that came about. And then you'd think, since most people had to hear these numbers, and they, they must have had to do the math in their head, all I can say is they must have been pretty good at math, you know, to come up with those kind of conclusions. Okay, so I kind of covered that quickly. Okay, so this is an example of what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about these unique um, parallels that you see in the, in the uh, Scripture that shows a certain deliberate um, pattern of writing. And so this is what we would call 
a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter um, X, <laughs> but chi. Yeah, okay, that, that was obvious, wasn't it? All right, so that Greek letter there. So the point is the middle is the meat, and then all the buns and tomatoes and everything else kind of come up top and on bottom. And so they, they've got a parallel. You've got A up here and A at the very bottom. So you've got A and then A prime. And then you've got B and then B prime. And then C and then C prime. D and then D prime. E and E prime. And then the middle would be kind of like the point. This was extremely common. Um, it was extremely common in Babylonian writings. Um, to a lesser degree, even in some of the Greek writings. They've gone through Homer and they've found similar things. And uh, as well as some Egyptian. So it's not the way we write today. But to give you one example, the Gospel of John, the whole Gospel's like this. There are all these parallels. So when we're reading it in our own mindset, um, you may have noticed that, that when you read John, it's like, why does he repeat himself so much? I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I'm, okay, I get it. You're the bread of life. You know, but it kind of happens over and over and over. And the reason is, is because there's a formula in writing that that that's would have been expected to a certain degree, but also it shows a unity in the text and connections in the text that again, show that even if there are different sources like that four source theory, the way that it's put together is so unified and connected that it's genius at the, at the least, you know, or it's saying that, you know, this was all kind of part of the plan. All right. In this case, we got the genealogy of Terah. Well, this is chapter 11. Chapter 22, we got another genealogy of Nahor. You know, so that frames the, the particular chiasm, chapters being framed like that. All right, so you got the start of Abraham's journey in chapter 12. We got the climax of Abraham's journey in chapter 22. You've got Sarai. Now, Sarai becomes Sarah eventually. So Sarai is in a foreign place in chapter 12 through 13. And then... She's also in another foreign place, chapter 20 to 21. So then you've got Abraham rescues Lot, chapter D, and Abraham, chapter D, chapter 14. Abraham rescues Lot in chapter 18. And then you've got the covenant of Abraham and Ishmael. And then you've got the covenant with Abraham and Isaac. And then in the middle, you've got Abram's name being changed to Abraham. And for the first time, Elohim is a reference to God appears. So this is the meat, right? The changing of the name and, you know, the connection with, with God revealing himself with the name Elohim in the text. So, so anyway, that is just one example. And, and these things are all over the place. Like the flood story, you know, same thing. There's a big, long chiasm that goes with the flood story and uh, several other places, including the Old Testament and the New Testament. So... Sometimes there's chiasms within the chiasm. So like, like between here and here, there'll be another little subset of them. Okay, so you had a question? I don't understand the chiasm. What, what exactly are, what is the purpose? The purpose is a style of writing that draws your attention to the middle. So if, if you heard the whole story, you would get these parallel connections, and it draws the mind toward the middle, which is the main point. We're Western. We don't think this way. <laughs> but it was something that was, it would have been considered um, somewhat normal back then. You know, and it definitely was normal in the style of writing. 
Okay, so Jacob and the twelve sons. Okay, so you okay, so Joseph, Judah, Benjamin, Levi, Reuben, Dinah, Issachar, Asher, Simeon, Naphtali, Zebulun, Gad, and Dan. Nephtali. I thought that's kind of a cool sounding name. I don't know of any kids being named that, but I think it would work. Yeah, this weekend we have a couple names, Eldad and Medad. So if anyone's got grandkids or something that you want to kind of throw some names at, those might be two good ones. <laughs> the two dads, Eldad and Medad. All right. So those 12 sons, it foreshadows the 12 tribes. And if we eventually, let's see, where do I have that? Uh they're too far back, I think. Oh, well, we'll get to them later. So the 12 tribes of Israel are pretty connected to those 12 sons of Jacob. And those 12 sons are not necessarily ends in themselves. You know, it's not like, okay, that one son, and then all of a sudden everything happened through there. But it's almost symbolic as well as partially accurate so that the um, it doesn't mean necessarily that Every single person that settled in that land came from that one particular descendant. But it does show a connection between the 12 tribes and, and the 12 uh, sons of, of Jacob. All right, so we have an interesting thing in here. Um, have you noticed in the Bible that there's a lot of trickery that happens? And so, so one is, in this case, I'm going to be talking about the uh, blessing that Jacob basically steals from from Esau, and uh, and it said that Esau was was a hairy kind of guy. I like Esau, you know, big hairy guy. Esau was also a good hunter, and uh, he was kind of the more manly man of the two, supposedly, you know. So he was the hunter, and he was the hairy guy, but he didn't seem like he was the brightest of of the kids, you know. Anyway, you just get that impression as you're reading along. Now Jacob, they they talk about him as being smooth skinned. You know, but the word they use is kind of, he was smooth. And, and actually, it's interesting because in Hebrew, that double play on words actually works. Because not only was he smooth, meaning not hairy, but he was kind of smooth, you know. He was kind of tricky. <laughs> and, and even his, his name kind of means a little bit of a trickster, you know. So, what happened here is when Isaac was getting toward the end of his years and his eyes grew dim... And uh, meaning he was going blind, he couldn't see so well. Then Rachel and Jacob trick him into giving Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. And when that happened, of course, Esau finally came back and he was all upset. And so Esau was, was, well, wait a minute, bless me. But you notice what he didn't say is, take it back. Because you couldn't take back a blessing. So I'll give you a brief example. A friend of mine, um, his mom was working an email, and then she left the room. And so then he went in and, and wrote something else that's kind of antagonistic on it and then sent it to his brother as a joke. And so the mom came back, and she's like, where'd my email go? And he smiles. He goes, I sent it. You know, and, and she goes, take it back. You can't take it back. When it's gone, it's gone, you know. So anyway, it's like the blessings are like that. When... 
when God blesses someone or when someone blesses someone, you can't take back the blessing. And so that's, that's part of the situation here. So the best that Esau can hope for is, well, bless me too. You know, just give me something. I was robbed, but bless me too. And the point of it is like, Jacob, he put on the little fur and, and uh, apparently he must have mimicked his voice or who knows what. But when, when Isaac blessed him, then all of a sudden, then now Jacob becomes the one who inherits the blessing of the family, you know, of, of, the, of the household. Well, Jacob outwits his brother. He outwits Isaac. And you think, well, that's the end of the story. He's pretty clever. And he's actually, in some, some respect, he's rewarded for that because the readers would say, boy, isn't he clever. And some of that happens even with, like, um, Daniel and stuff like that. This idea of cleverness is considered admirable. And even Jesus, he always had these clever answers, and that was considered admirable in that culture. So you think it's the end of the story, but it's not the end of the story. Because what does Jacob do? He goes back to the uh, land of his father so that he can, Abraham, so he can go get a wife. And he sees and he falls in love with Rachel, right? And then he, uh, Rachel, which means little lamb. So anyway, he falls in love with Rachel and he tells Laban, Rachel's father, that, well, hey, I'll, I'll work for you for seven years so that, I can marry, so that I can marry Rachel. And so Laban is a trickster, which is even more tricky than, than Jacob. Because what, uh, what Laban does is he, after working seven years and after um, Jacob gets married... He gets him drunk, puts him in the tent with Leah. So in the morning when Jacob wakes up, he looks over into the sweet eyes of Leah, not Rachel. And so, yeah, holy cow, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because Leah's name they think means little cow or something like that. Yeah. So what's, what's interesting about it is that that after being tricked, he can't undo it, you know? And what's, what's also interesting is, is Laban's remarks. I'm trying to see if I wrote that in here. I didn't write it in here, but it says something like, well, in our culture, the older has to be married first. It's the way we do things. Now, what is that referring to? Well, remember that Jacob tricked Esau, and Jacob was the younger, and then he kind of stole from the older. So Laban's kind of saying, huh, you know, it's kind of divine payback, right? So it's now you get the older and you have to work another seven years before you get the younger, you know? So eventually, you know, he would marry as well. Okay. So, so here's something to keep in mind. And I mentioned this already. So with Jacob, he's married to sisters. Now in the Mosaic law, that's not legal, Right. Well, it's not, trust me on that. But anyway, so you can't marry sisters in Mosaic law. And so again, why would, if they made up a story of the beginnings of Israel, why would they make up a story where Jacob is breaking Mosaic law? So again, it shows that there has to be a historical root to these stories. The same thing as Abraham, in a sense, when he marries Sarah, technically he's breaking Mosaic law there too. 
And so if, if the Jews were going to make up a history for themselves, they wouldn't have made up a history where their prime characters are breaking Mosaic law. You know, so it just shows that that sacred oral tradition was preserved, even if it was a little bit embarrassing uh, to the people later on. Now, us in our logical mindset says, well, wait a minute. They weren't really breaking Mosaic law because it predates Mosaic law. No, I know that. But my point is, if you're going to make up a history, you would make up a history that conforms with the existing law. And since they didn't do that, it gives credence to the literal history that happens um, with Abraham and, and with uh, Jacob. So I'm not saying that they had to abide by a law that didn't exist yet. I'm saying that it reinforces the historical reality of Jacob and Abraham in a roundabout way. That's internal evidence. So. Okay, so you've got the family and the promise. It goes Abraham and Sarah. Then it goes Isaac and Rebekah. And then it goes Jacob and Rachel. And so you'll notice that the promise tends to be contained within a marital status. So it's not just the patriarchs, but it's also the matriarchs that have a share in this. And that family relationship is part of the divine promise. It, at the very end of the story, after Jacob, you've got the brothers of Jacob. And you probably know the story, but Joseph was the uh, kind of the brat of the family. And so what they decided to do is they threw him in a well and they were going to kill him. But then they said, well, let's not kill him. Um, I think it was Reuben said, let's just sell him off to the Ishmaelites. And then uh, they sold him off to the Ishmaelites. And then Joseph goes down into Egypt. And then he's down in Egypt. And little by little, he works his way up in the system there as a servant. And then later becomes a very important, like second to the Pharaoh in importance. There's a story in there about Joseph and the, um, the wife of his master, and the wife tries to seduce him, and uh, he rejects that and, you know, in the end gets accused, but then gets exonerated at the end. But um, that story parallels an Egyptian story called A, wife, a Tale of two, um, two Brothers. And so anyway, there's a, another story in Egypt that's very similar. So we're starting to see now some Egyptian connections, not only with these stories, but also with some names. Some of the names that you're going to be hearing start to take on Egyptian uh, namesakes. Okay, but Joseph is down in the land. Meanwhile, a famine strikes up in Canaan. And so Jacob sends his kids down to get some grain in Egypt because that was the grain belt. Egypt and the Nile, that's where, where grain was very plentiful. And droughts in Israel was bad because you had one small little river, the Jordan, that you used to irrigate. But if in a drought season, you'd have no water. And so it was not as reliable as the Nile, which was a huge river, which every year it would send down because of the floods up in Ethiopia, send down tons of water that they could use. Drought years in Egypt did happen, but they were much more rare. So when the suns go down, they don't know that that's Joseph. Joseph conceals it from them. And then later, I read one of those, the, the trickery when he put the sacks on and put silver in there and... Um, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to his family and then invites the family to come down there and live in Goshen. And that's the beginning of what later would become the uh, captivity of the Hebrews in Egypt. And then after that point, then we have Moses who would come in and, and bring them in. So, but we do have some Egyptian customs. We have Joseph 
shaves. That was an Egyptian custom. It wasn't a Hebrew custom. Hebrews, they love their beards. And uh, here's some names. Uh, Potiphar, that's an Egyptian name. Asenath, an Egyptian name. Zaphanath, Panea, that's an Egyptian name. So those names are starting to work their way into the text. Also, Yah in Hebrew shows that they worshiped Yahweh. Like, okay, so Jeremiah, you know, Elijah, Isaiah. So that, that root means that they worshiped Yahweh. El is another one of those things. Like Joel, Samuel, Daniel. And even in the beginning, El, Elijah, El, Lisha. So, so those are words that connect the divine name to the naming of the people. All right. Okay, by the way, there is a papyrus. A papyrus is a, uh, and there were two ways of writing. Well, three ways, I guess. You could do stone. In uh, Mesopotamia, they'd take stone clay tablets and they'd mark it up and then eventually it would dry and then that would be what they would use. In, uh, in Egypt, they would use uh, papyrus more often. And that would have been using paper that you would treat, not paper, reeds, that you would treat and try to form it into many multiple layers until it became something that you could paint on. And that would be papyrus. And that became the uh, kind of like the early most popular printed material. There were also animal skins, but animal skins were much more difficult to work and they were much more expensive. So papyrus was kind of the way they went. But there was a papyrus that was found that dated from the late 1200s, and it found in Egypt, it talked about Semitic herders being permitted to live in the delta and escape the drought. So, you know, there's historical um, layering that happens here as well in some of the external documents. But again, we have to be careful that some people, they, they want to have the entire Exodus proved historically using archaeological um, evidence and writing. The problem with that is that there's very little of that that relates to the actual Exodus. And there are also some cultural norms that make it improbable that there would be a lot of that type of thing to happen. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned before, Egyptians never wrote about defeats. You know, every time the Pharaoh went off into war, he won. You know, and so they're not going to write big, long stories about you know, these Hebrews that came in and, and ended up, you know, pillaging our place and taking our stuff and leaving, you know, or, you know, some of those other things that happen. And also keep in mind that, that in the Bible, it's okay to exaggerate for emphasis. So um, when they say 600,000 left Egypt, keep in mind that that's an exaggeration for emphasis, emphasis to show that God favored his people and that he was bringing them out in a miraculous way. And so that brings that point out. And the fact that, you know, it would be smaller would mean it'd be less likely to be written about in, in Egyptian histories or even in, in some of the Canaanite writings, which they don't have a lot of anyway. Okay, so this is from... There's a Dr. Bob Breer. He's the... Uh, like one of the foremost, uh, what do they call it, Egyptologists. So one of the books I was reading was talking about, um, it was Egyptian history. That's all it was. It was uh, uh, He was teaching Egyptian history, and it had nothing to do really with the Bible or anything religious. He was an 
university professor that, that's an Egyptologist, and he was talking about um, the history of Egypt, which is pretty extensive. But in the midst of this, he had a couple chapters. One was based on Joseph, and the other was on Exodus. And what he basically says is, although we can't prove it historically, we can show that it does line up with what was going on in that time. And there are unique characteristics written in the text of the Bible that do reflect a culture and tradition that existed at that time. All right, so I'm going to read just a couple things. As soon as I find it. Okay, so remember when I was talking about Potiphar? He was the um, the master of uh, Joseph. So now what does the evidence suggest? Well, some of the similarities are intriguing. The Potiphar story is like the Egyptian tale of two brothers. Potiphar's name is the Egyptian Padi Ra. Ra is the god, you know, Ra. So who were the magicians mentioned in Genesis? The Coptic, the ancient Egyptian word for magician, is Sesperonic, which means scribe of the house of life. An Egyptian dream book also confirms Joseph's skill as interpreting prophetic dreams. So not Joseph per se, but the idea of interpreting dreams was a a trade that was very much valued in Egypt. And the Pharaoh's dreams are not in that dream book. So explaining why he couldn't why he couldn't interpret the dreams. But other similarities include the stella on Sehel Island, which tells of a seven-year famine resulting from the Nile's low water level. Joseph's signet ring of authority is typically Egyptian, so that the sign of that having a ring of authority is an Egyptian thing. Abrek is close to the Egyptian phrase heart plus to you, perhaps similar to God go with you. Priests were allowed to accumulate land which was true in Egypt, and the Bible says 40 days to embalm, 70 for mourning, and that as well, 40 days to embalm is in accordance with the Egyptian rules for mummification, and the 70 days for mourning was an Egyptian uh, norm. So basically it's saying, although you can't prove anything from any of this, it shows that there are parallels, that the stories weren't just kind of pulled out of the cloud, that they reflect the, the reality of the time. Okay, so let me see. Here's some other ones. Okay, so there's, there's virtually no archaeological evidence for the Exodus. Nonetheless, the Exodus is the foundation of Jewish faith in three, in three parts and is mentioned more than any other event in the Old Testament. It presents the following stages in Israel's history, bondage, Exodus, and coming into the Promised Land. The children of Israel are shown in bondage in the Bible. There was a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Okay, so this is like later on that the new Pharaoh forgot that Joseph had prominence and position. Remember that the Israelites didn't build pyramids, which date to a much earlier date. You know, like in the movies, when you see the Hebrew slaves building the pyramids? Yeah, the the pyramids were built like a thousand years earlier, so it was much earlier. But they did have cities that they would build using brick and straw and this sort of thing, so that was accurate. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that they built pyramids. I actually had someone say, you know, well, yeah, but the Bible says the, the Hebrew slaves built the pyramids. And uh, we all know the pyramids were dated much earlier, so the Bible's wrong. Uh, and so I was like, well, the Bible doesn't say there were pyramids, you know, that they built. But that's because of movies, you know. 
So the Pharaoh tells the midwives to watch the two stones. Okay, they, in Egypt, they had these birthing stones. So if you were a woman about to give birth, you would stand literally on these two stones and you would give birth, you know, from them. And so that, that, that's another characteristic brought into the text. Sounds fun, doesn't it, women? <laughs> so Moses was born and named by an Egyptian princess because I drew him out of the water. And uh, nurtured by his mother, he matured, married, and encountered God in the form of the burning bush. Moses told, God told Moses that the sons of Israel would be free, free to find the promised land of milk and honey. Okay, by the way, that milk and honey thing you ever heard of? Uh, Canaan, the land of milk and honey. Um, the reason for that milk and honey is because it's one of the few things that if you eat honey and drink milk, that's kind of a renewable resource that you don't have to kill the plant or the animal to get. And so it's just a, it's like an expression that meant um, a land of plenty that you won't run out of, you know, because it continually comes. So that not only referred to Israel, but it also referred to other places. At one point, it even referred to Egypt as being, you know, we want to go back where there was milk and honey. That doesn't mean literally milk and honey, but where there was so much that you can't exhaust it. Okay, the ten plagues. Well, I'll get to that, so I don't want to get too far into that. Okay, so there are reasons why there is no external evidence for the Exodus. The ancient Egyptians didn't record defeats. They had a different conception of history than we do. Exodus was not an important event in the rest of the world, like the Middle East reaction to the American Revolution. It's like no one cared. It was just, okay, they left. Oh, well. Maybe only a small number of the Israelites escaped, and their numbers were greatly exaggerated in the first place. Internal evidence, consistency, accuracy of the depiction of Egypt is how we are to make a judgment. So the cities of Pithom and Ramses are indeed real. They existed in the delta where the Israelites were. By the way, incidentally, those two cities did have, uh, if you go back another few hundred years, there was an older set of cities on top of the same area. Um, here bricks, not stone, were used for storehouses, so they used bricks. Bricks with straw were made, not in Canaan, but they were made in Egypt. Pharaoh's city was not called Tanis, but it was in later times when the Exodus was written, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as the Bible put it, was indeed an Egyptian concept. So the idea of hardening the heart was originally an Egyptian concept. It was not a Canaanite concept. Other Egyptian references include midwives told to watch two stones. I'd explain that. This is probably a reference to Egyptian birthing stones where women sat giving birth. The serpent act is also plausible. I found a snake charmer who could hold a cobra that stiffed up like a walking stick, and then, um, then he would let it go, and then it would crawl away. So basically that little thing was... And then finally, the name Moses is pure Egyptian, meaning birth. So it, it's funny because in the beginning it talks about the name of Moses being drawn out of water or something like that. But in Egyptian, the, the word actually means birth. So there's probably a loose connection to both of those things. Anyway, that's from a, a university professor, but it was kind of interesting when he's showing some of those parallels. All right. So now, I think we're ready to get into Moses a little bit. Is there a question or are you just... Shooting the flies, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Dinah, there's, yeah. Poor girl. <laughs> we got better with that over the ages, you know. All right. Yeah. Right. The Red Tent, that's a novel that was written a few years ago. And it's an interesting novel because it's basically trying to retell the story of that time. And Dinah is one of the main characters in there. Yeah, from her perspective. And some of it is actually fairly accurate. And some of it's, it's a novel, you know. But, yeah. I, anyone else read it? I saw the movie. That was like I saw the movie. I started to read it, but I got bored with it. It's like I was thinking, "Oh, great!" You know, it's like all the. But anyway, I started reading. I was like, "It's too much of a girl book." I think <laughs> so I was. I was starting to read it. And I'm like, ah. I went through a phase there where I wanted to be well rounded, so I started reading different novels. So, uh, so I'd I'd read all these different things, and then I got to the point when I was like, "Okay, I want to read a romance, just so I know what they are." Well, that was like torture. It's like. I almost, he's almost going to be together with me, but no, you know, it's like, and then almost, 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 no, it was like, but anyway, I don't remember the name of it even, that's real life. (laughs) Yeah, they like that. But you know, what's funny that, that genre of conflict and resolution where it's like almost, almost, no, almost, almost, that's kind of like the Abraham story, isn't it? So it's like, how's God going to fulfill this promise? Oh, th- no, not this one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not this one. Oh, it's going to be this one. Wait, he's going to kill him. You know, so, it's, so it, it kind of follows some of that, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so we're going to look at the history around Egypt. Okay, so I'm just hoping my dates match up. Sometimes I revise things and then... Forget to change one or the other. Okay, so between 6070, 1670 BC and 1540 BC, uh, the Egyptian Empire, which began, well, a little, it began a little before 3000 BC, but it became more formalized with its structure of pharaohs and this sort of thing in uh, the time after about 3000 BC. And there was a period of time where Semites invaded the land of Egypt, especially in the northern part of Eng- in Egypt. And what they did is they pretty much ruled the, the area, even though they weren't the official pharaohs. So it's called the uh, Hiskos uh, reign. And it was uh, a little more than 100 years. Eventually what happened is the pharaohs got stronger, and then they eventually ex- expelled the Hiskos out of the region. And they weren't all just Semites, it, they, call it, they talk about a Semitic people, so it doesn't necessarily mean that those were the Hebrews that came down, um, that Semitic people would have considered everyone else in the north, including the Hittites and part of the Greeks that could have come down and could have included even the uh, people in Mesopotamia. And so, But one way or another, there was a group that came down, the Egyptians wrote about it, and then they expelled them. So, but that was around that time. One theory has it that this is when Joseph came down and then Joseph became the, uh, 
the, the, the main important guy. And the, the Pharaoh would have been one of his right-hand men. But anyway, that, that's one theory. It, it's the minor theory, though, I should say. And then, eventually, this is something that happened in 1335 to 1358 B.C. There was a brief moment in Egyptian history where one of the pharaohs, um, he used to be Akhenaten, but he ended up changing the religion in Egypt to go from polytheism of many different gods to there's the sun god, and these other gods might exist, but we're not going to worship them. We're only going to worship the sun god. And so that was, uh, some people call it the first monotheism, but it technically wasn't really monotheism because it didn't, it didn't say that the other gods didn't exist. It just focused on that one particular sun god. Yeah, but that was only a brief period. Right afterwards, and, and there may have been political reasons why that happened. The priests at the time were getting very powerful. So this is one way that the Pharaoh could take to himself all the power and take it away from the priests. After this particular Pharaoh, Akhenaten, died, then all of a sudden the priests say, hey, we need to revert back to the old ways. And so, you know, very soon afterwards, Egypt went back to the old religion again. So, Akhenaten? I don't think he was, but maybe he was. I don't remember him being killed. I just remember him dying. Well, you can look it up on the break and let me know. So, but uh, anyhow, so afterwards there was some stability that happened in that that age in general between 1540 and 1200s. Not just in in uh, Egypt, but in all of the Middle East, uh, there was kind of a relative stability that happened, and because of that, there was economic prosperity, there was general peace for those days, and there was growth in numbers of people in general. And so, let's get that in there. So this is just, in general, the late Bronze Age was kind of a a period where a lot of the culture started to flourish. That also would have been the time that Abraham would have come into Canaan. And, you know, so it's the beginnings of of the Jewish faith as well. Now, Hebrews in Egypt, because I've mentioned already the Hiskos, but um, somewhere in that range, we've got the Hebrews who move into Egypt. And to be honest, although the, the Bible likes to talk about things as they are one-time events, like they were here, now they're there, um, the reality of situations of people's moving tends to be a little more fluid. So they may have come, they may have come back and gone again, and there may have been some that went and some came later and that sort of thing. But in general, um, there were Hebrews that did live in Egypt, and they formed a certain area in the north of Egypt in the Nile Delta. Then later, in the 1300s, this is, a, this is according to the most dominant theory. In the 1300s, there began to be forced labor of the Hebrews, And in particular, Exodus talks about the the helping to build the cities of Ramses. And there was the uh, other one started with a T, Tihor or something like that. Which, what is it? No, I'll remember later. That's all right. But but it mentioned specifically in in, uh, the beginning of Exodus, those two cities, city of Ramses. And then later on, then you've got the Exodus, and 
1250 is the date that is the majority opinion, I should say, although some say it was like 1450 or something like that. And uh, the reason is, is because although Exodus does mention Pharaoh, it doesn't name the Pharaoh, which is kind of interesting because it names all these other people, but it doesn't name the Pharaoh, which almost implies that they're, they're kind of denigrating the Pharaoh to a certain extent. You know, we don't want to make him more important than he thinks he already is, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's this escape motif that happens later as well. God, the warrior who defends his people and the weak and vulnerable people. Okay, so you may have noticed earlier on that, and even later on, that there's this theme of the younger that overcomes the older. Have you noticed that? Like that whole Jacob Esau thing? Well, think about David. David was the younger, right? And he overcame and became king. And so part of the theory is that there's this image that happens in Scripture in general where the weak are made strong because they represent Israel. And they are made strong by God because God strengthens weak Israel and makes Israel strong. And so you've got this younger overtaking the older and the weak overtaking the, uh, the strong. And oftentimes with the women heroes, you get that as well, that it's another sign of how God, they represent Israel. So uh, the, the women who overcome the, uh, the strong, I'm thinking about jail when jail went the tent stake through the head thing, you know, that's kind of one of those things. So they, they have that imagery where it represents symbolically the weak Israel who with God's strength can overcome and be strong. You know, so you get that with Joseph. He was one of the youngers and then uh, sold off into slavery and all that. But then he becomes strong through God's help. You get it with David. Um, you get it with the uh, patriarchs, like with Jacob. And uh, to a certain extent, even Isaac is written in that way as well. Because you'll notice that, that Isaac was considered the, the weaker, where Ishmael was considered like the, the better hunter and all that kind of thing. Same with Esau. But anyway, not to get too far off on that. All right, let's look at Moses. By the way, this picture I just put up there. When uh, one thing, when we were in, I was in uh, London, and we were going through the um, British Museum, and they had all these different exhibits. So they had one exhibit was like ancient cultures, and so it had all this stuff from Mesopotamia and Egypt, and um, it had a whole section up in the uh, with the Assyrians and all this. So I was with a friend of mine, and, and he was bored out of his skull. But I was looking around, I was like, oh, wow, look at this is, you know, because you can see all these connections. And so, like, when he's walking up and, you know, like when Jacob sees uh, Rachel and she's all sparkly and everything like that. Well, that's why she was all sparkly, because they, they wore all these little things. They had, uh, they would take gold and silver and they would press it and they would wear it all over them. And uh, there was one, there was one hat that they had that I took a picture of and it had like these golden little crowns and stars coming out all over the place and little silver things sticking out. And, and I was thinking they should make that back in fashion, you know. But, <laughs> but anyway, to this day, though, in some, some of the more nomadic tribes, they will still have that sort of look. But anyway, I just include that. Midianites. The Midianites were, that would have been in uh, the area up around the Sinai to the um, east of Egypt. Okay, so when Moses was finally exiled, 
Because remember the story where Moses, he kind of was raised up in a sense to become very important. And then eventually he found out he was a Hebrew and he saw the Hebrews who were working and being oppressed. And so then he interceded and actually killed an Egyptian after he saw an Egyptian abusing uh, a Hebrew. And so he buried the Egyptian in the sand. And of course, that didn't last long because, you know, those Hebrews, backstabbers, no, but it's like his own people turn him in, basically. And so then he gets worried for his life and he runs and, uh, and goes out and, and runs away, afraid that he's going to get um, arrested for the murder or killed because of the murder, because that would have been a capital crime. So he goes off into the Medianite areas and then he meets his future wives. And where does he meet them? At the well. Yep, they didn't have bars back then. You want to meet a wife, you go to the well. So, so anyway, but Moses was the younger brother of Aaron. Remember the younger brother, older brother thing? So, Okay, so when Moses is down there, he starts to settle in. He figures, I'm just going to stay here. I got my wife. I've got my, you know, he's kind of settled. And think about it. He was probably the cultured person. So when he came in and settled in that, that area with the uh, Jethro and, and the girls, he was probably uh, considered the cultured one, you know, so he would have brought a, a good wealth of information as well, including things about probably some of the, uh, some of the information that, that would have been useful to them. So at one time he has a theophany and there's this burning bush and that's when God speaks. The burning bush is an interesting thing because Here is God speaking to Moses in a simple way that he would understand, even though it's different than anything we would think. If we were going to have a theophany of God, we wouldn't say, hey, there's a bush that's just on fire, you know, and look at it, it keeps burning. You know, but in, in, that was a clear way to speak to Moses. If he were to speak to us, he would probably do it differently. Well, he's not going to speak to us in that way. But, but anyway, this burning bush thing speaks to Moses. And then in addition to that, God reveals himself. He's like, he reveals his name. Like, who do I say sent me? And then God says the divine name, Yahweh. But the name that he, he says is, I am who am. So this word that he uses and that explanation is an interesting word as well, because it is not just God saying, my name's Bob. You know, it's, it's this word, I am, is a word that contains the present as well as the future. So I am existence. I am what is. I am that whatever will be. It kind of contains all of that within in that simple word. I am, I was, I is, I will be. You know, so it, it really is a very inclusive uh, name. In addition to that, It was God showing that he supersedes time. Um, by the way, that the, the word Yahweh, do I have that up there? No. Y-H-W-H, remember no vowels, so there's just that um, combination of letters. And translated in the Hebrew is literally, he will be or he is what he is. Um, the word in Hebrew, Eye, Asher, Eye, I am, who am, I am what I am, Popeye. So, you all get that, right? Popeye said, I am who I am. It's like everyone's just like, what? Okay. Okay, the idea of the name is important as well. 
In the ancient world, to get someone's name is to possess them in some sense. So if I give you my name, I'm giving you some authority over me. And if you give me your name, you're giving me some authority over you. So people would not just say, hey, I'm John, I'm Bob. You know, and so it's, it's not just like today where give, by God giving his name to Moses, he's giving himself over to Moses in a real sense. And we see that naming in the ancient world as well. Example, when Jacob says, when, remember Jacob who wrestles with the angel? And then he says, bless me, bless me. I won't let you leave until you bless me. And he wrestles with him all night and breaks his hip. And then, and then he says, what is your name? You know, so he wants the blessing and the name. You know, so that's the combination there. And then also with Isaac means he laughs. Jacob means the deceiver. Sarah means princess. Abraham, Abraham means great father. And so all that is tied into the idea of the name. And so when God gives his name, it's more than just saying, yeah, call me Yahweh. You know, it's really saying, you know, we are being brought into a particular relationship with one another. Of course, we know that Moses is getting a job out of this. So it's not just that he's going to um, say, okay, well, we'll just kind of stick around here on the hill. I'll leave my sandals to the side and we'll just camp out and stay. But no, he has a job to do, right? He has to leave the mountain and go into Egypt and he has to free his people. By the way, Mount Transfiguration, what happens there? Peter says, let's just stay here. We'll build tents, right? And Jesus says, all right, let's go. Same sort of thing. All right, we can't stay here. We've got work to do. So same thing. Moses has a job to do. Um, By the way, this idea of God and Pharaoh in this explanation of Pharaoh hardening his heart. So it, it, it implies the way that it's written that God looks at Pharaoh and says, I'm going to harden your heart so you reject what uh, Moses is asking you to do. And then once he rejects what Moses asks him to do, then he goes, okay, now I'm going to send the plagues. And I'm going to harden your heart so that you still don't repent. I'm going to send you more plagues. I'm going to harden your heart so you don't repent. Have you noticed that in the, the way that it's written? It's a stylistic thing. But keep in mind, in the, in the Hebrew mindset, they didn't have a developed philosophy about how God works and how free will works. They know that people have free will and they know that God is all powerful. But when they're writing about why did Pharaoh harden his heart, then they were saying, well, God only allows what he allows and God only does what he does. So therefore, if God says this needs to happen, it's going to happen. And so they would almost write into that an expression as if God is making Pharaoh harden his heart as opposed to allowing him to harden his heart. Some of those distinctions later on in the scripture start to soften and you see free will being explained in a more developed sense. But in the primary sense, okay, God controls all things. He's stubborn, so God made him stubborn. They weren't overly worked up about whether or not he has free will or not because God made him stubborn. It was just their way of explaining what happened. Do you see what I mean? Over time, they say, well, we've got a theological or a philosophical problem here. How do we have free will and how do we explain it? I know. We say that they made the decision and God allows it to happen. But that developed later. So in the beginning, especially in these times of Pharaoh, God made his heart stubborn. That's just a way of saying that uh, regardless of whether Pharaoh had free will or not, he was stubborn. You see the difference? Yeah, so don't worry about it when you say, why did God do that? You know, it's like... 
Well, yeah, that's my point. God didn't really do it, but it's a way of writing that expresses God is all powerful. So if this guy got stubborn, God must, must have done it. Um, but it was just an expression to say it happened more than a theological reasons about why it happened. Anyway, that's a minor point, but. Okay, by the way, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, we want, first he didn't say, we want to all move back to the Holy Land. At first he's saying, we just need to go and offer sacrifice. You know, that was the first thing that Moses asked Pharaoh. And then you'll notice that, that Moses said, we need to leave here and go offer sacrifice. And you notice that Pharaoh didn't say, well, just offer sacrifice here. And the reason is, is because the land itself contains the gods that they would worship. And so Egypt, that would be under the gods of Pharaoh. And so for the Hebrews to be able to go and offer sacrifice in a way that is right is to leave the land of Egypt and offer sacrifice in a place that is outside of Egypt. Because there was this connection between the land and the gods that are of the land. So that's why Moses said we need to leave the land. And that's why Pharaoh didn't argue with them. But said, well, of course you would need to leave the land to do this. I'm not going to let you go. But anyway, you know, that, that's the reason why. Um, I'm going to talk about, the, how's my time? Well, there's a bit of drama in there. All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish. I'll just mention the plagues right now, and then I'll finish with any questions about anything. And then, how's our lunch, Marty? Do you need more time, or are you? As much time as you want to take, we're fine. Are you? Okay. All right, well, I'll start on the plagues. That's kind of fun. Plagues. Oh, yeah, by the way, Moses was a stutterer. And that's another example of the weak being made strong, right? So when people are humble and weak, God makes them strong. And God gives what they need in order to accomplish his plan. And when people rely on their own strength, then God doesn't really like that. So there's this obscure thing about why Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land. And it talks about the time when he struck the rock. And you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it doesn't seem like a great answer, and in some ways it's not. And there's probably others, because this is just one uh, quick explanation of that. But God told Moses to say to the rock, water come out. And then since Moses struck the rock, it's just symbolic of him not trusting God's divine power and trusting in his own strength to make it happen. You know, so God was not happy with that. Anyway, that's later on, but, you know, it, it goes to show that Typically, what people are called to is to trust and be obedient to God and loyal to God. And if they do, then they have to not trust in their own skills, but put their own skills at the service of God who will use those to his purpose. Anyway, that's true today, isn't it? So, All right, now let's look at those plagues. So the first plague, turning water to blood. Where is it? There we go. So this, this little graph, it kind of shows a one, two, three, four, five, six. It kind of does like a big circle. But you get the point. All right, so the first plague, water to blood. Second plague, frogs. 
I still wonder about that one, but like all the boys were probably happy that frogs came. All right, the third one, mosquitoes. Then you have the horse flies. And then you have the livestock death, like pestilence and that sort of thing. Then you've got the boils. Then you have hail. And you've got locusts. Then there's darkness. Death of the firstborn. Anyway, so there are ten plagues. So, and you also have this, at first the plagues happen, and then Pharaoh, in the beginning after the frog, Pharaoh begs, like, okay, okay, but then he changes his mind. You know, and then later on all these other things happen, and then you have the Pharaoh saying, I have sinned, and then Moses isn't fooled, and then Pharaoh relapsed. So it's, it's almost as if Pharaoh knows the reality, but he's so stubborn that he can't help but revert back and relapse. And then he finally gives in. Okay, only the men can go. But then even that didn't work. Then he, then he recants as well. And then he says, okay, men, wives, and children, but no flocks can go. And then he recants. And then he says, okay, get out of here. You know, so by finally, the, you know, after the death of the firstborn, then Pharaoh's just like, leave. And not only leave, but you know, they're going to take everything with them. And the point is, not only their own stuff, but even a lot of the Egyptian stuff, like they're pillaging the place, is, is they, they walk out. And that's, that's symbolic of God giving them abundance and blessing even as they leave. So you have this process of Moses, you know, or God acting through Moses, acts and then Pharaoh hardens. And then you've got Pharaoh whines, Moses fixes, and then Pharaoh hardens again. And uh, so there's that, that kind of repeated process that happens through those different plagues. Okay, so there's, there, there is something in addition to that whole thing about plagues, because we, we typically think of it as, you know, okay, there's the pestilence, and then there's hail and all this. And we think in just natural terms. But think about it from an Egyptian point of view and the gods that they worshipped. All right, so for example, a lot of this is, God showing that he is stronger than the Egyptian gods. And Moses is demonstrating this as well. But like when, when he has that contest between the Egyptian priests and then, you know, what Moses does, then the, the magicians do. And then eventually Moses' snake eats the Egyptian snake. Well, that's a sign that, that Moses' God is more powerful than the Egyptian gods. The, the different... Um, well, the different, uh, what, what do I call those things? Plagues. The different plagues are similar in nature. So, for example, you've got the blood in the Nile. Well, that's symbolic of those, those river gods. You've got um, Hapi, you've got Osiris, and, and these gods that are related specifically to the water. You know, well, showing that, that the blood in the water shows that God has more power than those gods. And then you've got the frogs. You're thinking, what's with the frogs? Well, there was a childbirth god, and uh, the childbirth god was Hecate, and that was a god that was a frog. And so they used to pray to this frog for, for a childbirth. And so by God showing um, a plague using frogs shows that God's more powerful than you know, their little frog god, Hecate. In addition to that, you've got pestilence. 
Okay, so you may have heard of an apis bull. So the Egyptians, they, they had these bulls that they considered sacred. And the apis bull, they mummified them and everything. I mean, it was this big deal in ancient Egypt. And so also there was a cow, Hathor, which was another god. And that was representative of the mother and the sky god and fertility in the bull. And so you've got all that being overcome by the pestilence and the death of these livestock. So that's God being more powerful than those Egyptian gods. And then you've got the uh, crops and the wind and the storms. And, you know, that would be like the hail and the locusts and all that sort of thing. Well, that would be the gods Men, Seth, and Isis, which were gods of the crops, the wind, the storms, and life itself. And so that shows, once again, you know, the Hebrew god is more powerful than the Egyptian ones. And then you've got the darkness, right? So we talked about the sun god, Re, and uh, Aten, or Horus. You know, that darkness shows that God is more powerful than their sun gods. You know, so it's once again, the, the Egyptian gods are, uh, you know, much less powerful than the Hebrew ones. And then you've got the death of the firstborn. And uh, Osiris, in the original Egyptian myth of Horus, um, Horus gets killed and cut up, and Osiris brings them together and, and uh, does other things. But then uh, eventually what happens is that um, Osiris is considered the, uh, the one who gives life and this sort of thing. And so by the death of the firstborn, it shows that the Hebrew god is more powerful than the Egyptian god Osiris, which was, you know, in their original myths, considered like one of the strongest gods. So, so anyway, you get this understanding being um, brought about through the different plagues. So it's not only God punishing the Egyptians, but God demonstrating that he's more powerful than the Egyptian gods. Does that make sense? So you get a bit of that. In addition to that, there's a bit of a, some people talk about this, that there's a bit of a progression in the way that the plagues all came about. And I think the way that they were talking about it is like, well, first there was a water that killed the fish and then the fish crowded the areas and then the frogs could no longer survive in the area. So they hopped out of there and then invaded the land. And then when they were in the land, it brought about, um, um, well, the gnats and then the lice and then the flies, you know, from all the the rotting frogs and the pestilence that came from that. And then, then from the pestilence, you know, they had like the plague and that brought out the boils and, you know, but anyway, it shows that there's a bit of a progression in that. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's interesting. So, so it's something to keep in mind that we always think about as all these separate things that get thrown out there, but there could have been a continuation that happened at the same time. So just another little take on that. And, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that the number of plagues, um, being 10 is remember I talked about 10 being that kind of ideal number. And it's about those 10 speakings of God in creation. And so it just kind of lines up with that as well. Um, sometimes people will, will go one direction or the other and they'll say they were only natural events and they try to explain everything naturally. And we don't have to do that. You know, I mean, there are times when God supersedes nature and there are other times when he works according to nature. Um, I've, I've heard people kind of take that, that mindset a little far, like when, uh, you got Daniel and, and, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in this big furnace, and, you know, they pump more and more, and it's like thousands of degrees, but somehow they don't burn up. 
And then you got someone explaining, well, you know, if you've got a cold spot, you know, and this, it's like, you don't have to explain everything in the Bible away by making it somehow Western and scientific. You know, God can do what he wants to do. So were these plagues natural? Well, we do know that there were natural things that happened that were like that. Um, There's a uh, kind of a red tide that goes in, or there's the red mud that comes down in a flood from Ethiopia. You know, so those things happen. And you all know there are frogs and gnats and lice and pestilence and all these things. So those things do occur naturally. Uh, but the point is, is that whether it was natural or not, God was the author of it all. He was the one behind it all. And that's the important thing. So we don't need to try to explain everything naturally. And we also don't need to try to make it seem like um, God creates miracles out of nothing all the time. That, that both of those coincide and work together. All right, so before lunch... Are there any other questions? And we'll get into Pentecost and all that stuff and a little later. Yeah. Um, when was the idea that God is all around us um, become evident in the psyche versus I've got to leave Egypt and go over here to offer sacrifice to God? Okay. The, yeah, the question was about when did it become apparent that I need to leave Egypt so that I can sacrifice to God, the, to our God and this sort of thing? The territorial nature of the gods was something that was, especially in that Fertile Crescent, considered normative. The, uh, the Jews started figuring out that they didn't need to be in the Holy Land to worship their god, especially during those times of exile. Now, looking back, you can see that even when they're in Canaan, you had the Canaanites as well as the Israelites, and they were both offering sacrifice, and they both were worshiping their own particular gods. So... Um, it's not necessarily the case that they could never worship their own gods in, in foreign lands, but there was a connection to the land to the gods. And so in it, one example in, uh, um, in really ancient Mesopotamia, uh, people like Sargon, when they would go in and they would invade other cities, the first thing they would do is they'd go into their temples and steal all their gods and then bring them back to the, the homeland because that way they are holding them in captivity in a sense. You know, so... So there was an understanding that, that you could actually be abandoned by the gods or you could um, kidnap the gods, in a sense. And they, they had a very primitive understanding of these sort of things. But um, the Jews realized that I need to worship the gods of my ancestry. And odds are that when they were in Egypt, they did this as well. But there still is a connection to the land. And so that's why the Egyptians, who were very... Um, set on their own land. Basically, there was Egypt and, and everywhere else was considered inferior. So no Egyptians, even though they would go up north and they would conquer parts of, of, uh, of what became Canaan and that sort of thing, they never wanted to stay. They would set up an outpoint, they would pillage and take whatever they could, and they would always go back to Egypt. Uh, Egyptian women would never be married off to other kings. So whereas the other kings would say, here, take one of my daughters as a Mr. Pharaoh, as, as, my, as your wife, so that we can have peace. The Egyptians never wanted to give their daughters over to foreign rulers because Egypt is where it was at, and, and no one wanted to ever leave Egypt. And the one time that um, one of the um, Babylonian rulers wanted to have an Egyptian wife, the Egyptian Pharaoh actually sent an imposter and uh, figured that they would never find out about it. Eventually they did. But anyway, it just kind of tells you this, this idea of the land that they lived in 
as being something that was particular to them and their gods was just part of it. But that didn't mean that they wouldn't also understand. Like later on, the Jews came to the understanding that there's only one God and he created all things and those other gods don't exist. And therefore, you know, all of creation and heaven and earth is from him. You know, that did develop later, but in the very earliest parts, there was the idea that we worship our God, who is Yahweh, and those other gods later on, uh, they, they explained that it didn't exist. In the beginning, they would talk about other gods as if they did exist, but there were still hints, even in Genesis, that those other gods don't really exist. So does that sound vague? It is vague. That's the point. It was like we like little, you know, kind of clear-cut things, but... Anyway, yeah. When you mentioned the brother Esau, is there a relationship between him and Muhammad? Oh, Ishmael. Okay, so I'm going to cover the uh, Quran and Islam and all that stuff. Um, Islam started in the 600s, so 600 years after the time of Jesus. And so what they did is they took um, what they wanted from the Bible and incorporated it into their own history. But it was 600 years after the time of Jesus. It would have been 1,600 years after the time of uh, the King David. And that, and it would have been probably about 2,000 years after the time of Abraham and any of that. So what they did is they basically borrowed and took what they wanted and then placed into their tradition and so that whole connection with Ishmael and all that stuff being, um, it, I mean, it may be true that it's part of the Arabs that, you know, developed, but there's no real connection between Islam and Abraham and the religion around that. Uh, and yeah, but I'm talking historically. So, yeah, but anyway, that's something that developed much later. So it'd be the same thing as like when Joseph Smith in the 1800s would would make these connections that go back. and Well, there's no real connection there uh, because it's 1,800 years later. You know, but sometimes what they do is they incorporate stories and then they place it into their tradition. And so that's what, that's what we're talking about here. All right, it's probably lunchtime, right? All right, so we'll do a brief lunch prayer and then we'll uh, go from there. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the Scripture. May God bless you.